welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, so this week I'm joined by Casper Wilstrup. Casper founded the Danish artificial intelligence startup Abzu, along with seven brilliant, friendly and quirky humans, so I'm told. Their goal was to challenge the fundamental assumptions of contemporary black box AI. And today, Abzu is 17 employees strong and it's transparent and explainable AI is solving problems in big pharma, exposing previously hidden relationships in drug discovery, clinical trials, and biopharmaceutics. Casper, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you very much, James. And- I immediately feel out of my depth in uh, in the conversation that we're about to have about AI and technology, but I'm uh, I'm looking forward, as I said previously, to taking my ge- my my listeners on the the learning journey with me. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Casper? I'm located in a little uh, the northern part of Copenhagen at our at our office here, right by the sea. Actually, I'm looking out on the sunny. Oh, lovely! Uh, on the sunny ocean, actually. Are many, of, many of your 17 employees with you today in the office? Well, about half, I think uh, we are. So, so we have five of our colleagues that are actually located in our office in Barcelona. Um, so um, they are there. Uh, but of the Copenhagen staff, I'd say about half tends to work in the office uh, on an average day, maybe a little bit more than half, with a number going back up after what we've all been through. Please. Welcome, change. Um, so, Casper, the way that we start these these episodes is uh, we get you to tell your story, and I imagine it's uh, a fascinating one given what you're doing now. So, I'm looking forward to hearing it. So, uh, by all means, tell us your story, sir. All right. Well, I guess in in terms of uh, of what I'm doing now, my story probably starts when I was about nine, uh, which was the first time I got the first time I got my hands on a computer. Actually, it was a, uh, a ZX81. It was a, one of the first early uh, com- consumer computers available in, I think it was launched in A1 by Sinclair Studios in the UK. And I got myself one of those. Actually, it was my friend's, but I more or less took it from him. And then I got a ZX Spectrum a little later and then sealed my fate. I became a power computer nerd. I remember sitting in... Uh, in my parents' living room, uh, coding in, in assembly, actually, when I was about 12 years old, because I was got, had gotten tired of, uh, of uh, the basic interpreter incorporating that machine. So a uh, pretty, pretty um, nerdy uh, way of behaving as a, as a young boy. Like, um, not like very many other people there in the early 80s, because nobody had computers back then. That's different from now. So anyway, that, uh, that I guess, sealed my fate. But I never really thought at that time that I was going to be working with computers. It was more like computers was a, a play thing. So I've always fixated on, on more sciencey things and I wanted to be a physicist. Um, so the next thing that, that, uh, that that's probably worth relaying about that other than just normal youth is that uh, I decided to study physics and, but also in physics, I got very involved in using computers to, to, analyze, um, to analyze data. And, uh, and in physics that comes typically for either experimental data or to try to simulate theoretical uh, approaches. So. I, I, I got very much into the, the simulation part of, of, uh, of, of physics research and started um, working on building very early high-performance computing clusters to, uh, to simulate uh, really quantum fields, actually. Uh, but actually, these kind of computers are used to simulate all sorts of things. But I was particularly interested and fascinated by the idea of, of simulating quantum fields, which is a 
difficult and strange problem where you simulate infinite worlds uh, by kind of trying to chop up uh, time and space in, in, in fascinating ways. So, uh, and, and to this date, actually, that approach is still the most promising approach to analyze quantum fields and understand quantum physical reality at, at the lowest level. Um, but, but my attention turned more and more to the building the computers that was able to analyze this data rather than you know, thinking so much about what they physically meant. Um, so that, that, that took me on a journey where I, uh, I started building more and more custom hardware solutions, actually. And then in 99, I think I decided that, um, that the time was uh, that, that I actually created a kind of a network interface card, a, a small hardware device that allowed you to build more efficient, uh, high performance computing clusters. So I did my first startup company in, I, we, we decided to do it in 99, but me and my that's another student at the university that I founded the company together with. Uh, we actually launched the company in 2000. So that got me out of physics and into this wonderful world of, uh, of building companies and, uh, and startup companies, uh, particularly in the tech space. So the world looked different in 2000. It was like just before the dot-com bubble. Uh, so we had some very early successful traction with our product. We sold it to all those, well, the older among the listeners here may actually remember names like um, uh, Yahoo and uh, and here in Europe. We had, uh, we had Lycos and Lycos Europe here in Europe. So those those kind of companies were our customers. But dot-com bubble burst and uh, we were hit by that. And that kind of took the company that I found back then on a, on a fairly rocky ride. Uh, so we didn't die as a company, but we and we, but we didn't succeed the way we, we thought we were going to either. So a couple of years after that, I actually handed off uh, the company. I sold uh, the, the medium successful company off to a French capital firm. And then I went into the vet, uh, to the to the consultant business. And I guess I'm more or less got involved with, with building a, a consultancy company in, we almost call it a management consultancy company, but, but one of the more nerdy ones uh, out there. Uh, based also here in Copenhagen. Uh, and I spent about 10 years in that, in that company. Uh, but what a lot of the consultancy we did was actually working for, for, different, uh, for different venture funds, doing tech scouting, due diligence work on everything that they contemplated investing on. So I, I kind of kept this, kept this connection with the startup ecosystem for, for all those years. So. I worked with several different venture funds, but but mainly some located here in Denmark. And I think I, I did tech due diligence. That is a kind of the assessment of the technical feasibility of a, of a startup idea uh, on early phase startup company on more than 80 different companies over those years. So I've seen a lot of different startup companies and seen a lot of different ideas and have formed a lot of opinions. Uh, actually, I also ended up joining one of those companies. So I took a three-year stint. Uh, I did a due diligence on, a, on, a, on, a, on an AI company called Blackwood 7 uh, that I was quite fascinated by, not in terms of so much of what they were doing. It's, it's kind of like analyzing market efficiency data uh, for marketing purposes, uh, but still the, the challenge of analyzing huge amounts of data and, and, and uncovering uh, structures in that. So that was, I think, in 2014 or something like that, where I did due diligence on, on them. And then I decided to jump on the other side of the fence and become an, a member of a startup team again. So I was in Blackwood 7 for several years. And this is where the story, at least in terms of, of my current company, absolutely starts to turn interesting. While I was in Blackwood 7, I realized that there was an idea that I had been bubbling with the back of my head, that had been bubbling in the back of my head since 
I guess, 95, that you could use quantum fields to simulate machine learning or artificial intelligence uh, models. So that idea, actually, I, it's not, it wouldn't be fair to say that it occurred to me back then because it actually occurred to me in 95. But I realized that perhaps the technology and computers had evolved far enough that it was perhaps feasible now to build a quantum simulator to, uh, to do artificial intelligence. So uh, I left Blackwood 7 in, I think it was 17. Uh, and, uh, and then I decided, and then I kind of took a year sabbatical thinking about what to do next and did some early prototypes of this idea. And uh, I went around, uh, I guess, most of Europe and connected with uh, with uh, people that I've gotten to know over my over my many years in in, in startup, uh, and tried to put together what I thought would be the ideal team to realize the 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 idea of quantum fields for AI, uh, and that's why the founding team became pretty big. <laughs> the seven founders it's not common uh, for startup companies, but we felt we needed some very strong intellectual resources to actually build this rather crazy idea um, and the best way to get put together a brilliant team can sometimes be to just involve them as founders so the people founding apps were, are from italy spain and denmark and it's more or less a a coincidence that uh, that those are the the locations that they're from it's, it really was just the best people within say high performance computing and artificial intelligence and uh, and and systems level uh, uh computer software engineering that I've that I've gotten to know over the years. So we founded Upson and um, that brings us to I think 2018 where the company was formally founded. And then the last three years has been spent on first building this technology, proving it works and now commercializing it in the pharma and, and health science field. What a story that is and I, I mean, I'd love to be a fly on the wall at a pub conversation between you and these seven founders. Our goodness knows what you guys are talking about. But we might we might come on to that in a second. I want to take you right back, first of all. I'll take you right back to, to being nine years old and about computers, because you were clearly fascinated by computers. There was something that motivated you to take computers apart, to kind of almost almost develop this like symbiotic relationship with computers that you had which was which is interesting to me because I certainly felt something similar by no means to the extent that you have but technology did always fascinate me what what do you think it was that fascinated you about computers what was it that was driving you to take them apart to learn to code what do you think it was uh, well first of all I, I had an advantage that I really think is a shame that people don't have nowadays which is that back then computers were so simple that you could actually understand them it's okay. like imagine that you that you bought a, a 4t you could take it apart I'm sure and and put it back together and it was probably pretty easy to, to know what a car was and how it functioned from every bit of piece so I was I was from that era there was nothing in my ZX Spectrum that I didn't understand. I knew wow. every, every single, single chip in it, every single, the effect of every single machine instruction I could do to it. All the memory space was mapped out to kind of the IO devices and that it was, and it was, it, it sounds impressive, but it wasn't hard. It's like, okay. it, it's like machine, the computers were simple, but they, they really were. So that's a, that I think it was a huge advantage that my generation of computer scientists had. There was no opportunity, no way of not learning them from scratch if you were actually curious. So, so first of all, 
I, that, that was certainly an advantage that I wish more young people had today. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't even try to pretend that I understand a modern PC like the one I'm speaking on here. It's like full of stuff that I have no <laughs> idea about how it works and, and I probably couldn't learn it in a lifetime. So for that, that, that I think is an important point in, in shaping my early years. Uh, then there was certainly something about, so, so computers as a concept just didn't, you know, the, the idea of computing as a procedural thing or what has uh, what the Turing called the Turing machine was just a con con conceptually different way of thinking about reality. And I think I just some, there was something in it that I latched onto uh, already as nine year old that you could just, I remember doing silly, my, I think my first program was a software program, so things like saying, Hello, I am your set expression. What is your name? And I type Casper on the keyboard. And the, Hello, Casper, how old are you? And I was just fascinated by the fact that I typed Casper and now the computer was able to use that yeah. word back at me. I guess that kind of fascination probably is hard to master today when you just grow up with, the, with computers so powerful as we all do. But so, I mean, that it's, but it's still my favorite. I was just this modality, this ability to to be creative and create machines that or create software that did things that just couldn't be done in any other meaningful way. There's something as well for me in your story about the, and I, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but also it, it seems to me that the, the concept of infinity, the concept of limitlessness, because you talked about moving on to simulating quantum fields and i'm not going to pretend i know what that really is at this point but chopping up time and space to simulate infinite worlds as well i mean the fact that you speak with such ease that that was something that you were doing that you wanted to do it seems like that was fascinating you and not to put words in your mouth but i suppose exploring so much possibility exploring so even what you said there about realms and a fascination of what could be possible there's there's so much there about what's the possible what what what's infinite what's what's at the other end of all of this mm. but i suppose when you when you have the ability to grasp that at a young age and you are and you allow yourself to be fascinated by that you can't help but surely see where that goes i i guess not i mean so so my, my fascination with with physical reality was probably about the same age, but maybe a few years later, where I kind of it kind of dawned on me. So, <laughs> I guess another point in my life story is that that my mom was a was an, uh, a, a fanatical collector of science fiction uh, novels. So she had every science fiction novel from the '30s and up to like the '80s, where I started reading them uh, on our bookshelves. So I also had the science fiction both conversations with my mom, but also reading them once I learned English, uh, so learned English um, was, uh, was, um, was probably very formative for me. So I, but, but, but I also, the, the science fiction is for some people, it can be a gateway into science. I just want to know what, how does this really work? And particularly the flavor of hard science fiction that was very popular in the eighties. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think quickly, Dawned on me is, is I take it like second nature now, but I know that some people don't really think that way. That when I look at reality around me, I don't think that I see reality. It's not like reality is this thing. This is the this is a very high level abstraction and emergent thing that I can absorb with my senses. Uh, 
Yeah. But I'm not really challenged. It doesn't really worry me, for instance, that a particle can travel from A to B by taking a superposition of an infinite set of paths between those two points. It's like, I know that when I say things like that, particles go from here to there, not by a straight line, but taking a sum of all paths. People say, uh, what? And, <laughs> but but, but it's, it's, it, it never really bothered me. It's just, well, they do. And if you just integrate all those paths over each other, it looks like it's a straight line. And that's why we call it a straight line. So it's not the it's not it's not reality that that colludes to make a straight line. It is the appearance of this actual underlying reality that looks to us like a straight line. Yeah. It, it, and I guess uh, from having thought along those lines since since being a, a, a child, I guess it's just yeah, it's, it, it, you know, it doesn't sound strange to me. <laughs> it's so it's so interesting because I the other day was reading about the the double slit experiment, and uh, I'm not going to butcher the explanation of it for those that don't know. But let's just say particles completely change their behaviour when they're observed versus when they're not, and part of me was frustrated that I couldn't wrap my head around that. I couldn't wrap my head around as soon as you turn on a machine that detects where they are, they do something different. Part of me was, was extremely frustrated. And part of me was just kind of, I al allowed myself to feel the wonder of that, to feel the wonder of how much out there do we not know? And that, that is wonderful. I find that wonderful. I find that extremely engaging. And it makes me want to have conversations with people like yourself to, to learn more about other things. And oh, I loved it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the double slit experiment is such a, so, yeah, it's a good starting point for, for, for wonder because it's just, as you say, reality retrospectively makes up its mind yeah. <laughs> about what happened when we observe it and, and who are we to change reality retrospectively? How can that come about? <laughs> but, but that, but, but again, remember that is just the appearance of it, right? So the slits are being observed also. So this, the slits don't have to make up their mind about where they are until you observe them. So the entire thing is a thing in flux That's where so true. we create, or the, the reality is created relative to the observer. And here we have, we have we're talking about closed open. There is one thing that, that I will not even try to explain. That's the notion of, of consciousness. What, what does it mean to be an observer? But, but for quantum physics, that's not really important because a thing can observe another thing. And uh, so you can create these chains where for unit four wave functions to collapse, technically, they just have to be observed. But you can't really know if a thing observes another thing unless you observe that thing and so on in an infinite <laughs> chain until you reach you. Indeed. So, so at the end of the chain, there have to be not a human, but you. It has to be me who does that. And that's, it's, 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 that's not really, um, but again, like this can all be expressed in nice mathematics. So it, it sounds crazy, but it's, it's, it's okay. And that's where I want to move to now, right? Because I, whilst I could talk about the, the, the intersection of philosophy and physics all day, um, I'm interested in how all of this relates to what you do now with, with Abzu. So you are, well, you, you tell me, I'm hearing words, quantum fields, simulating machine learning, simulating AI, chopping up time and space to simulate it. Tell me about quantum fields. Tell me about what a quantum simulator is and tell me how that now helps pharma companies to build medicines that can help humanity. Yeah, let's, uh, let's try. So, so starting, starting with, uh, with quantum fields, 
actually we could return just to the, to the double slit experiment. So you have a particle that goes through a uh, from that you send it and you emit it, and then it hits a, a detector on the other side of the double slit, and it takes a, a route that is some sum of all the possible routes it could take. But since you created two slits, it has to go through either one or the other. Right? So, so you, you force the particle to take one of two routes. But actually, that's not true. The particle can take any route it wants to, except that it, there's one constraint that has to go through one of the slits. So when the particle moves from the source to the target, it takes all possible paths through space. But a lot of those paths just cancel out. So when you end up observing the particle, you see it have taken, taken a, a single path. But you can't know which path that was until you observe it. Now, that allows you to the, repeat the experiment again and again. And every time you observe it, you get a different result. Right? The particle has taken a different, slightly different uh, path every time you, you measure. Um, but there is a more likelihood of take, it taking certain kinds of paths than others. So that generalizes to many particles. And and the, the and the, what we do in our technology is that we set up these kind of experiments where we send particles off from some source, all in simulated computers, and then we we calculate the number of different trajectories they can take through space until they hit the detector, and that 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 list of possible trajectories it could take is actually infinite, right? So it's an infinite list, just like in quantum physics. So chopping up space and time here just means to take this infinite set of functions and by saying, well, a particle can take any trajectory, it has to go through certain vertices in, in, a, in a grid, then we, can, then we can make this what move from the continuous space into a discrete space. So essentially, okay. we can generate trajectories that are no longer from an infinite space, but just a very huge, like 10 to the 100th space. Like there's, there's more possible trajectories still the particles can take in the simulated reality than atoms in the universe, but still we can sample this space. So that's, that's the next step. Now we, we, we run these simulated quantum experiments and we sample them, the, the trajectories. We take those trajectories out and then we try to think of those trajectories not as, uh, as, uh, as uh, trajectories of particles, but instead of mathematical equations. So, so for instance, if two particles meet in a certain way, we think about that as the addition operation. If they meet another way, we think about that as multiplication. If they do a certain kind of twist in space, we think about that as a logarithm. But it's just in our minds. It's not like in the simulator. That's just how we do it. So, the, so whenever we sample a trajectory, we can immediately just translate it back to a mathematical equation. So now you have the core of the absolute technology. It's a technology that allows us to sample mathematical equations where the inputs are particles and the output is a detector. Got it. Good. So next step, take a data science problem. Like say you have collected data about, let's say, take something really simple, the age and the body mass index of a number of people, A and B, age yep. and body mass. And then you want, you want to predict this probability of C. Maybe let's make C stand for cancer. Then you are, you are, you, you, your question is, I would like to understand how age and body mass index relates to, say, cancer. Um, so that's an equation, right? It could be any equation, log h plus the square root of your body mass index. And you can make that equation arbitrarily complex as you please. But the best model with, there can be noise, and maybe you can't even predict the probability of cancer, but if you can, then you can express cancer, the probability of developing cancer as some mathematical function of h and body mass index. Um, so, on in comes our technology, uh, which, by the way, is called the Q lattice after a quantum lattice. Um, 
And, uh, and we use that to sample this infinite space of mathematical functions relating A, B, and C, H, body mass index, and cancer to each other. Wow. So, so you can sample the infinite set of all mathematical functions in that way. So let's say that we do that, and then we get, let's say, 2,000 equations out. Uh, and then we can compare those equations to some kind of observational data we have. And we will know which one of these equations match best. Now we tell back to the QLATs what we liked and what we didn't like. Essentially we're saying, oh, but this equation number 172 was way better than, so we sort the equations by their fitness. Uh, and then we update the probability fields in the quantum field and we sample again. So we gradually converge the probability field in the quantum lattice and the QLATs so that when we sample equations, they are more likely to be the best equation to explain the data. But it's a continuous loop, right? We pull functions out, compare to data, pull functions out, and report back what we liked and what we didn't, and so on. And that, we can demonstrate that over time, that converges to us having, with a very, very high probability, found the best possible equation to relate these things to each other. And here is the, here's the, here's the, here's the point. That equation is the simplest equation that can explain the relationship. So let's say that the data was, um, that there is a relationship that governs this. An example like what often uses, let's say that we took the data that, that Albert Einstein had in, uh, in 1904 when he was thinking about the special theory of relativity. If we take that data, which was coincidentally uh, collected by two physicists called Michelson and Morley, and run it through, the thing that comes out is, uh, is what's called the Lorentz contraction factor or the mathematical exp expression of, uh, of the special theory of relativity. So what comes out is not some kind of model that fits the data. It is the mathematical formulation of the theory of relativity, the special theory of relativity. So that's, that's, that's cool, right? So if Einstein had had this machine, he, he would have been able to, uh, to just take the data, run it through, and out would come his own theory. He wouldn't, of course, have known that that, why that theory was about. So it still left a lot of brilliant room for, for Einstein's brilliance to say, oh, but that seems to be an equation that expresses time contraction as coordinate systems move relative to each other. But at least he, he would be able to do that, right? He would have an opportunity to do that because the equation was given to him and now he just had to interpret it. So perhaps a less brilliant Einstein could have just formulated the theory of relativity if he had had the Q lattice. Now that has already been formulated. So we're looking at, at different problems nowadays, but, but essentially the, the core ability of the technology is just that, just extract simple equations that can explain your data. In, in, let's say in health science, where I, I've done a lot of the actual work I do. So we have to focus a lot on, on farm and on health science in, in, in absolute currently. Uh, so, and I myself is doing this, a lot of work with, with, with actually doctors analyzing health science data sets. So what that, that means is that, um, that we can take some clinical research data of some kind or health records of some kind, and then we can extract simple mathematical equations that predict things. So for instance, a, a paper that I'm working on with a collaborator is about figuring out what causes preeclampsia. Uh, and, uh, and we have actually found some as yet unpublished, very interesting results about nonlinear relationships between cer uh, certain, uh, certain serum measurements in these women that are very strong predictors for preeclampsia, stronger than what we've seen with any existing models for preeclampsia. And the model is not complicated. It's very simple. It just highlights a certain interaction between certain serums I'm not a doctor, so I won't really even try to interpret exactly what the model is saying, but it's cool. a simple equation and it does give a better predictive power for why women develop preeclampsia. And you can give it real biological meaning because these are just zero measurements. Um, 
So that's an example from, from health science. In pharma, or we're doing a lot of work in, in drug discovery, that isn't me personally, but some my colleagues, uh, where we're analyzing compounds. So that, in that space, we're not talking humans, right? It's just compounds, molecules of some kind, or antisens, oligonucleotides, or siRNAs, or mRNA vaccines, or whatever. Some kind of compound, and we want to understand why it has certain effects. And perhaps let's say that the thing we want to understand is why a certain compound sometimes causes uh, damage to the liver, hepatotoxic. Um, so say that is what we wanted to, to predict. Then if you take our technology, what comes out are simple equations that can relate the structure of the compound to the probability of it being hepatotoxic, which gives the researcher using the technology the opportunity to say, not only can I predict whether a compound is going to be hepatotoxic, machine learning techniques like like random forest gradient boosting neural networks can do that already. But you can actually also look at the equation and say, what is it saying? And, and it could perhaps some examples of what you can say is, well, it seems to be that there are certain, so an antisense oligonucleotides, which are small strings of, of, of DNA. Uh, for instance, uh, it could be that there is a certain um, sequence in the five prime end of the gap of this of an that's I don't expect the, the, the listeners to really know what that necessarily is but but anyway certain structures in the molecule that has a, has a strong causative effect on its probability of being hepatotoxic so the researcher can then go back in the lab and design around that based on knowledge and not by random guessing so i think this this stands in comparison to machine learning techniques as they are currently mainly applied in, in almost any field where you have a data set, you fit some kind of model to it and you get a model out that is able to predict. And then you can use that model to do, do, to, to screening, right? You just create compounds and predict how likely is it that it's going to have the effect or how likely is it that this patient is going to develop that disease. But you can't really inspect the model and see what is it saying, what is it doing? So here we go into this, to what people are calling, um, are calling, uh, uh, I'd like to call it inspectable uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, it's also called explainable AI. Right? You, it's, it's like you get an explanation rather than just a model. Uh, and that to me is, is crucial. Personally, I think that's crucial in any field. I'm actually quite, quite skeptical about building predictive machines that predict things where we, don't, we can't really explain why they do what they do. Because that means that they only do what we do as, as long as they are used within the scope of what they were trained on. We don't know how they behave outside of their training data, which is, I guess, in some cases, it's fine. But I'm skeptical. There's a lot that I want to talk to you about here. <laughs> that was a heck of an answer uh, to my original question. I suppose to confirm that I suppose I understand what you what what your technology does. It is finding the simplest equation that explains the relationship between various sets of data. And that becomes very interesting to me, particularly in healthcare, because quite often I ask myself, and I suppose back to a bit of philosophy, but I, I often ask myself in healthcare, like, what are we, what are we aiming for? Like, what are we actually aiming for? Are we aiming for the perfect diagnosis or are we just aiming for the healthiest patient? And how do we define healthy? Do we include happy? Do we include well explained to do we there's there's lots of things that that make up what is actually good clinical care but i suppose if we were to say the perfect diagnosis each time and that's what we're aiming for then if we take your technology and we give it all the data that it needs and that is also a question what would be the perfect data that it would need 
in theory, then just as you've said in, in a few of your examples, the your preeclampsia example, you, you know, you can get to a point where you can start to explain why that happens for, for disease processes that we're quite unsure of currently. And then my mind goes to, well, if you can map the genome, then you can add in what everybody's measuring on themselves, the quantified self. You measure everything that it's eat, everything that you, you know, the, the patient is eating, everything place that they've been for air quality of things they might have breathed in, for every tap water they might have drunk. The, the more data that you're feeding this with, in theory, you just get closer and closer to the perfect diagnosis or the perfect predictor, which becomes very interesting. Have I understood that correctly? Yes, uh, that's that's a heck of a question. There are so many answers I want to give to that, but uh, <laughs> um, but I to, to start with uh, with um, I think that there's there's a notion that I think it's important that you realize when we work with 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 machine learning or fitting models to data in general is that there are three types of reasons that your model is not fitting particularly well. Uh, and it's, it's, it's important, I think, when you work with those kind of approaches to understand what, what, is, what is the most likely scenario for your model not fitting specific particular world in a certain state. So the, mo the, the, the easiest, I guess, model, uh, reason to understand is that the, what you want to predict cannot be predicted from the data. So if I try to predict uh, uh, tomorrow's weather from what I have for lunch, that is not going to work, no matter how much I train. Um, so that, that, that's, that, I guess, is called, you could call that the base error, because sometimes you can partially predict it from, from data. And uh, so given that you had the perfect model, there would only your model would be so-and-so good given the input data that you give to it. So that's called that base error. Then you have noise, um, which is the situation where you don't really know uh, if, if the measurement you put in or the thing that you wanted to predict, if you measured that correctly. So maybe you didn't actually have that gene that you thought you had, or maybe you didn't actually uh, do what you said you did. Um, so that, and that's, that's essentially noise. And you could think about that, that's separate from base error, right? If, if you could just measure it more accurately, you'd be able to predict it more accurately or fit better models that were more accurate. So that's the second category. You can never really know whether you're noisy or whether you just have a base error. Actually, that's one of the challenges that, that a lot of people have. You can't really, you have to just intuitively guess that. Finally, there is a possibility that the modeling technology or the way you try to model it is just wrong. Like say that you are using a, like a lot of people do in, in, in health, like a linear model. Uh, then if, if the effect you're studying isn't linear, then you're not going to get a good model. So you can, you can do that as much. If you want to predict the probability of, of developing disease as a linear function of age, it can only get so good because most diseases are actually exponential in age. Um, so, but then you know that, and then you can try with an exponential function. But what, what if they're, what if they're not then based a natural based logarithm exponential? What if it's actually a square, a square function or whatever? So, so if you fit a fixed model or a fixed modeling technology, you can only get the, up to the limit of what that modeling technology can express. So I think the, our technology, the QLASS, takes the last part out of the picture. Right? It, it'll, it will essentially search through the infinite space. So it will, if there is a mathematical relationship, it will find it. Um, so that, that, that's good. So now we, we are, we are, we're back to, to problem one or two. Um, and in, in a lot of omics cases, like so, so it's a genomics, where you try to predict a certain diagnosis from genes alone or from, from the genome alone, 
I think you're in the base error situation, right? There, there are just a lot of things about your outcome that can't be predicted from your genes. Yes. Um, then you can then you can enrich that data set with with other types of omics data, like so, so protein measurements or other things you can. And then of course a technology like ours will be able to say, is there is there an, a, a better fit in that case? But you're still probably in the base error space, although you you fare better. And then you have a lifestyle choice, choices uh, that you need to add. And uh, and at the end of the day, you can you can add all this data, and you'll get you you will be able to get pretty good models. Except that there is a piece of uh, of of base error that you'll probably never conquer, which comes from random fluctuation. <laughs> yes. Um, so given any kind of problem, you will always have the base error of random fluctuation. And sometimes that's small. And Einstein's theory of relativity, random fluctuation still plays a role. Planets can fluctuate a little bit, but it doesn't really matter to the overall um, to the overall model. Um, um, but in, in other situations where you have an extremely complex system like a human organism evolving, it, the situation is different. Right? It's, it certainly is a, a randomness. It's just a factor to game. So I think that let's take something like genome-wide association studies that have been applied to, to, to genomes in, in, in many settings. I think they are linear in nature, and that's wrong to begin with because the genes interact, but they're also wrong to assume that you can even do these predictions on, on, on diseases uh, based on the genome alone. Uh, and even if you go to multionics, doesn't, doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. I mean, there's a lot of prob probabilistic diagnosis that can be done by analyzing this data where I think a technology like ours could play a role. So those are my thoughts. Uh, wow. And so I'm interested now, I, I suppose, as we start to wrap this up with Abzu and, and everything that you're doing, you've talked about pharma companies um, and the things that you can do there in drug discovery and clinical trials and biopharmaceutics and things like that. I suppose in that in that more health science stuff that, you, that you've talked about, what is the ambition there? I suppose short, medium, long term, however you want to answer that. And how close are we? The reason I ask as well is because I think so many times on this podcast, I interview guests where all we can really hope for is incremental change. And I think that's a, that's quite a common thing in healthcare innovation because you can't move fast and break things because patient care is is at you know at risk. And, you know, for things that are clinical facing and, and when it comes to improving technology, it often is incremental change. And we are looking for percentage increases and decreases. And, and that that is what we can hope for. I think here, though, it's it's rare that I get so, I suppose, inspired or so into my own head about thinking of the potential. And it seems to me here that that, that potential is something that's that's quite important i suppose when it comes to things like hope and it comes to things like what can be different in future i think a technology like yours and a mind like yours frankly is inspiring and it, and it can provide a lot of hope that we can have a stepwise change in healthcare and something can significantly improve so when it comes to health science and we can talk about pharma too but when it comes to those that preeclampsia example and other things what can we expect here well i think the i think we can expect a lot I think um, technologies like ours is 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 going to be a, perhaps a leap is an overused word, but it's, it's, it really is that there is like a, a treasure trove of information in in the data that has already been collected um, in in health, and uh, and analyzing that with a system like ours would, would yield a lot of interest. It happens every single time. I can tell you, we can take a data set and we can analyze it, and, and we find nonlinear interesting relationships for which the doctors that I'm working with go, wow. 
uh, almost every single time. So the problem is actually in the data. So we have, so health data is quite often noisy. Um, it's not necessarily collected in a structured way. It has to be cleaned up and, and, and realigned. And, and, it, and even then you have noise just in the measurements. Yes, so, so that, that's a challenge. On top of that, of course, we have, a, we have the challenge of, um, of uh, access to data, right? So what, even if, if so I'm sitting in Denmark, we have some pretty good databases of health data here, but it's not like I just run them through the queue lenses. Um, there's a lot of legal regulatory requirements, as there should be. Um, however, I would like to highlight that, that that's one area where, where we are also in a pretty strong position with our technology because the QLATs, as I explained it before, never actually sees your data, right? You can actually, it, it generates models. You take those models and on your data, compare that data to the, gra to the, to the equations. So the equations come to you and you don't send the data back. You just tell the QLATs which equations you like. The QLATs knows nothing about the data. So, so that, that gives us at least an opportunity to talk to regulators about analyzing health data with the QLATs. They do it right there on their own machines. So that's also the, the way the preclampsia case was done, for instance, and, and all of the, a lot of the other projects were involved in. Um, but I, I st still, I mean, structuring data and collecting structured and non-noisy, non-messy data about health is uh, is would be a, a game changer. There's a lot of interesting initiatives in that field where where, where we're, we're seeing things that have little to do with our technology. It's just about getting the data there and, and preparing it, and then so so I think we see we see things coming together, and uh, perhaps I, I think we'll see some major leaps. And I absolutely wants to play a role in those major leaps. Um, we, we, we often, why are we in life science? A lot, every, almost everybody in, in Absa is, is a scientist in some flavor, bio, biologist or a physicist. Or, uh, so so it, it's natural for us to work with people who have a scientific mindset. But it's also because what is, the, what is the greatest place where we can make our new technology make a difference? I mean, marketing, financial analytics, uh, customer churn prevention, this 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 is what matters right this is this is something at least that gets me up in the morning uh, mm. even though i'm a physicist i still care about humans and and, mm. and health i totally agree and i think one thing that is really interesting to me there is again you know 200 episodes deep of this podcast you know goodness knows how many entrepreneurs that i've spoken to trying to change healthcare in a meaningful way the amount of times that the conversation comes back to interoperability and structured data is just obscene. Like the, the, like we often talk about it here as the boring bit, but it honestly, it is it, that infrastructure piece. We could, whether we're talking about, I don't know, like a, a new blood test machine or a, a quantum physics, it comes back to like have we got an electronic medical record is it all structured data and do all the systems talk to each other to make everything more efficient it seems that no matter what i'm talking about all the way up to quantum physics it comes back to these same things and if anybody ever questions the role of policy the role of government the role of all of those things that can actually move the needle particularly somewhere like the uk where it's a public healthcare system in the nhs you know we can talk about venture funding and private equity funding till the cows come home but here you've heard it for our listeners that even when it comes to quantum physics, if we can't structure our data properly and make all the systems talk to each other and interoperable, then we can't advance this thing. And so that's kind of a call out to the people that can make a change in all those other structures too, because 
oh man I've been there in policy it's hard it's it's slow it's difficult but my goodness is it still important um Casper for our listeners we have listeners across everything entrepreneurship policy uh technology healthcare clinicians would do you have any asks of our audience in terms of the people that Abzu wants to connect with in terms of <clears throat> personally where you want to see this field going um any asks of the people listening well if you have an interesting health science problem then uh, then do reach out i mean the technology is is it is there and we are we are we are Actually, a couple of weeks from now, we're going to launch a, a what we call the community QS, which allows researchers to use this technology awesome. um, pretty for free, but it's a limited resource. It's awesome. A pretty expensive simulator. So so uh, so it's going to be free, but with a you have to kind of allocate a QLSS on, on our free resources. And if you have a project or if you have uh, particularly also if you also have the data, then uh, then then we're very interested in, in helping out. Um, and please let me know when you're doing that because I will certainly amplify that message of that resource out to my network because as I say r- rarely am I so in- inspired I mean, you know superlatives till the cows come home I could do with this but I am genuinely inspired by what you're doing I think it is genuinely incredibly interesting and not least because of that stepwise change that we talked about the ability to find the simplest equation for data sets that, that relate to each other. I mean, my goodness, the, the, the potential there in, in, in healthcare, as you talked about, is pretty much unmatched, I think, from, from other guests that I've had on this, on this podcast. And so, Casper, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on board. I think we've, we've covered everything, haven't we, from, from philosophy and physics to quantum to healthcare. Um, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It was really great for me to be allowed to talk about all these nerdy details and not just uh, on the high level. <laughs> if uh, if people want to get in touch with you um, or indeed the company, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, our contact details are all on our website. Do reach out uh, either by looking up the details there or on LinkedIn or whatever is your preferred method. We are a very open company uh, and everybody in Absolute is is, is is eager and pleased to speak to to people who have interesting things to talk to us about. So phone, email, LinkedIn, go ahead and reach out. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.